Welcome to the show. This is the Daniel Werman Show coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between. It is yours truly. Today, we have a packed show. We have Mickey Turner coming up just a little bit later on to update us on yet another lawsuit with U.S. Soccer. It's amazing. These things never end, and you have to start to wonder what in the world is going on. But here at the top of the show, I am pleased and and honored and really excited to have joining us Kefern Fuller. He is the president of Joga and the director of SMI. Kef, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, Daniel. Thank you, man, and I uh, appreciate you uh, having me come through, man. So um, I want to jump right in. You you are based in the Netherlands. Obviously, yes. listening to your voice, we, we can tell that you are um, American. You, you grew up here in the U.S. Now you have um, migrated east to to Europe to the to the land of milk and honey when we are discussing the global game and mm-hmm. and are fully immersed in the soccer scene in Europe and have incredible insight both there as well as here in the US market so kind of give us a little bit of of a kind of short background in terms of your your past your your playing history and then kind of, that kind of led you to discovering why Europe versus the States and, 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 and kind of, we'll pick up from there. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, just the quick, the quick run through was, uh, I grew up playing uh, youth soccer in the States first in North Carolina, ended up in Georgia. Um, uh, and in Georgia, when I was about 16 years old, I met my, uh, a Dutch coach uh, named Alex Palma, who used to take us on these tours to the Netherlands back around, uh, you know, late 90s, like 98, 99, 2000s. Um, and back then, I mean, it was very rare to, to, to be a team that went overseas. So I remember that the, his sales pitch was to bring us to see real football, to see the, the highest level of international football. And uh, so we used to go on trips to Holland. And, you know, when I first went in, in 1999, it kind of blew my mind. Uh, the structure, the talent of the players, the culture, the environment, you know, and being a player, you know, I didn't know, I didn't have any idea of how the, the ecosystem worked. Um, but I kept going back on these trips, kept going back on these tours. Uh, when again, when I was uh, uh, 18, and then I get, when again, I was 19. And then finally, after I finished uh, four years of playing soccer at George Mason University, I called my, my same Dutch coach up and said, hey, can I come to Holland for like three months and just, you know, play some soccer, maybe play some amateur soccer, whatever. Um, he said, sure, got me a host family. And uh, that kind of led me on the path that I am on now. I was, I was lucky to, to meet my wife during that, those three months uh, back in 2006. And... Uh, yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of, came back for another three months and and just really showed me the soccer market, met agents, 
the club that I was uh, that I was training with, uh, Cumber Lay Warden, actually tried to sign me, but I didn't have an EU passport, and that would be too expensive at 22 years old. But either way, it just opened my eyes to a totally different world that, that I experienced uh, throughout my youth soccer days. Um, and so when that happened, you know, it kind of uh, – when I didn't make it, um, but I saw how close I was, it kind of created, a, you know, I think a healthy obsession with trying to now move into the coaching field and develop players and, and help players and identify players that could potentially – move into this ecosystem in Europe. And so um, that's kind of been the journey and the journey's, I guess, been spanning, uh, spans almost uh, getting close to 20 years now, I guess. So you, know? you and I connected a few years ago, uh, first through yes. through social media, as I've done with so many people, and and mm-hmm. then later, you know, um, met up in, in person. We, we've... Uh, met up overseas, uh, met up in yep. DC. Um, and I've seen you work firsthand with players, player development, player identification, and, um, you know, really have a good understanding of, of a couple things. Number one, what is a, what is the global standard, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there, there's a kind of a phrase that, that you'll hear, um, used that, really drives me crazy most of the time because it's it's misapplied which is world class um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and then you know uh, i i put that kind of almost right next to unlucky as curse words in in uh in the game of football um, yep, yep. just 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 because it drives me crazy how how often both are are misapplied but when mm-hmm. you when you are looking at what you see you know you are there you are on the ground you have brought teams you have brought american players uh, abroad mm-hmm. to europe to to experience um this this full immersion of football culture and mm-hmm. and you have seen clubs up close firsthand you you have networked all throughout europe what is what is missing in american soccer versus what you are seeing on the ground every single day in europe it's it's environment um environment meaning um let's say this from eight to 12 years from eight or let's say from the beginning years to about 12 13 years old us can hang they can play man there's talent uh talent for talent we have uh us has an unbelievable market um that could compete with the rest of the world the problem is is that the environment here is predicated on creation of pro players. Uh, everybody understands what, they do, what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, it's not hidden that they're trying to enter the pro world. And so there's an ecosystem and environment that's built around you. Agents start to talk to you around 13, 14 uh, years old. Um, scouts are at all your matches from rival clubs from clubs all throughout the world you know if you go to ajax on a weekend you'll see man city scout there you'll see uh uh, when i was there i remember arsenal and Schalke were there and you know just it's just a market you know so it's it's, you know a lot of times you say the soccer market and the ecosystem there's there's everything's predicated around uh identification developing 
all around the pro game. So all these factors, all these things are working together to um, put players in this uh, in this system, in this ecosystem, and it's competitive, right? What we have in the U.S. is kind of reversed as of right now. You know, you you obviously have your MLS franchises, you have your MLS academies, and even within those academies, if that club, if that MLS academy uh, doesn't rate you, how much of a market do you have? You know, um, it's 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 very very small. It doesn't mean you know like. Here, you know, if you're not rated, uh, if you're not the top two or three players at Ajax or AZ Alkmaar, you know, you have somewhere else to go. You know, there's somebody who, an agent or another club or someone is trying to make things happen for you. I, I feel in the States, it's a, there's a lack of that. Of course, it's starting. I think you're starting to see it more and more. We've seen some, some things picking up, but it's still not close to the level, um, the level to create that environment. There's just not enough competitors to make it really mean uh really really meaningful to a lot of uh, a lot of people in my opinion so the the ecosystem in europe yes is predicated as you were just describing on developing professional players and then if you don't make that level there's Mm -hmm. there's still opportunities for you maybe maybe not in the first division maybe it's a lower division maybe it is amateur or semi-pro um, and, and, you know, maybe eventually there's, there's nothing for you in terms of, of, a, of a high level of, of opportunity. Mm-hmm. When you look at that setup where you are pushing your best players, you are developing your best players, you are holding accountable your best players to a standard of becoming a professional footballer, Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is the reason why starting at around 13 and up that the U.S. market is underperforming because the, the bar is set lower, that, that it seems to be that, you know, a college scholarship is the preference or the goal for most of these you know, MLS academies that they're not even trying to get their, their players to their first team, that it's more about, okay, Hey, we, we had, you know, 30 players that all accepted scholarships rather than trying to get the two or three or four integrated into their first team. And then, and then if they, if they don't make it into their first team, that they're at least trying to get them prepared to be professionals at the second division or third division level. Do you think, do you think that's part of, why we are not reaching potential in terms of player development between the ages of 13 and 18? Uh, yes. And, and then also uh, your environments or, or things that can affect your environments or your markets. Um, like Europe has affected the market currently. Like, so myself and James Myers, who's my, who's a colleague of mine at SMI and, and with Joga, we've noticed there's been an uptick now in, people in MLS uh, uh, academies trying to sign homegrowns and, and, and trying to notice young talents, maybe play them, you know, because all of a sudden the European market with, you know, the success of, uh, you know, Wes McKinney's done well, obviously Christian Pulisic, but then you also see um, obviously Alfonso Davies, some money was spent on him and then some money was spent on Chris Richards. So all of a sudden you see like an uptick on that. And the only reason that happened was that an outside market gave, 
value to the work or to their uh, uh, to their system. You know, within the system, there's no validation really. You know, because if you're there, it's not like all of a sudden uh, you're developing and then everyone's saying, oh man, that's the place to go get talent. Um, the New York City FC is doing so well or our Philly Union is doing so well because it, there's there's like a lack of value um, for American players within our system. So the thing that, that like I said, the, the thing that you see in, in Europe is that if you're developing great great at 13 14 15 16 by the time they're 16 years old you'll see the top clubs starting to come around and look for these talents and try to offer them deals and then the other club has to offer a deal to them and then you know it's it's essentially you know what you produce gets noticed and that's that just doesn't happen in the states there trust me there have been fantastic youth teams in the states before that have had professional level talent but have not been recognized or not valued in the system for whatever reason is because we have a lack of competitors. And when you have a lack of competitors and we t obviously talk about this with promotion relegation, why you need it is that you need more competitors to create more value in the whole system for, for clubs, for teams, for players, for coaches, everyone's value is actually lower in the States because you can't make it, you can't make it better. I mean, not, not to toot our own home, but I'm just going to say it. We had, between the age groups of 2005 to 2003, just in our group, we had eight in Joga. We had like eight players called up for the uh, national team camps in some kind of way, either the regional ones or um, making it all the way to the, the main national camps. You know, we were a small club. Like at most we ever had was maybe 40, 50 players, you know? So if you think about that, you would think that would give a lot of validation or a lot of value to us within the U.S. system. It doesn't because there's a lack of competitors, a lack of building. It's just saying, oh, well, either you're an MLSDA or you're, uh, or you're not. And if you're not, then you have no value. Do you, you get what I mean? Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the U.S. ecosystem, you, you've mentioned this several times, that there's a lack of competitors. Um, and you just touched on the fact of promotion and relegation and how that opens the, the opportunity for more competitors because you have more clubs that can have aspirations based on their on-field performance to work their way up uh, mm -hmm. the pyramid to, to create more competition, more access around the country. We, mm -hmm. you, you actually allow an open market from a business standpoint to take place. And therefore, the, the ingenuity and the expertise and the experiments and all of these different factors come into play now. And you could be in Boise, Idaho and, and create mm -hmm. something special uh, where right now uh, you, you, you really don't have very much opportunity if you're in Boise or if you're in, in, mm -hmm. you know, other parts of the country, not to mention mm -hmm. the fact that you may be in a market like DC and you know, you have a, a club and you're building something where right mm -hmm. now you're completely, you know, locked out. There is no meritocracy. So therefore yep. there's this arbitrary label and standard given to one organization at the expense of everyone else. And so no matter what you do in terms of developing players at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 
you 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 really don't have a lot of leverage in in terms of building you know you could say hey i've i've gotten eight players into the national team programs and and yet you don't have access to what other clubs have access to and it's not because you're not doing a good job and in in some mm-hmm. cases you could argue doing a better job than mls academies you still don't have any opportunity to to necessarily have that leverage in your local market because your first team and your organization in general doesn't have the opportunity to build mm-hmm. you know as high as it needs to go and and take yep. your club as as high as it needs to go and and so when you look at you know lack of competition and you, and you look at the lack of a, of a opportunity for a club and then you see some of the recent announcements late last week from major league soccer how now mm-hmm. now that they're they're starting to to lose some talent overseas now all of a sudden even though you know uh, and i played this clip yesterday on the show Sunil Gulati stood up a year ago saying that there's no, you know, there's no way to do solidarity payments and training compensation because, you know, it, it would be illegal to do so. And, and the players union would yep. have a problem with ball. Now that MLS decides that it, that it's something they want to do without any change in us law, um, mm-hmm. in the last 12 months, now all of a sudden miraculously, you know, miracles have happened. And now MLS is going to honor solidarity payments and training compensation, which yeah, just further yeah, proves yeah. that what they're saying is is hooey. Um, yeah, yeah. What what effect is that going to have on American players now that MLS is is going to you know play by the rules? Yeah, I mean it's a couple of days. For, you know, first off, and I, and I put this on Twitter as well for those who follow me on Twitter. Um, training compensation, solidarity payments are no problem, in my opinion, in an open system. In the MLS system, for only them, it's a huge problem, in my opinion. It's a very um, – it restricts – it's going to restrict player movement for players who are already in a restricted space already, <laughs> if you get what I mean. Um, within the league, it's already kind of difficult to move with it from one club to the other. I heard some people have said like, Oh yeah, you can, but like, you know, I dug up the Christian Kappas story. Uh, Christian Kappas uh, played at uh, from the Houston area, played for Houston Texans. And he was on the team with Chris Richards that won the uh, national championship. I want to say two years ago for U19 DA. Uh, so those were the two feature players that did very well. Uh, and FC Dallas, recognized that and wanted to sign both. I think they signed, signed Chris to the Academy. I think they signed Kappas to the Academy. But when it came time to offer Kappas a deal to the first team, I think, um, to sign a pro contract, Houston had a claim on him, the Dynamo. He never played for them. He never played for their Academy. But they said because it was in their, their catchment area, in their area, that it had to kind of go through them and that he would have to sign with Dynamo. And if you look at the article, I mean, I think it says MLS said that he had to sign with the Dynamo. And Dallas wanted him. So he was already restricted just in the state of Texas or, you know, to two cities. You know, I guess you couldn't go to Seattle or Philly. Like, they're already saying that, that he can't go. Uh, and I'm like, that restricted his player and, uh, his player movement. And if you read in, in the Morn article, he said, you know, he said, hey, I just had to stay fit. 
and uh, and then see what opportunities can happen abroad. Think about that, you know? So the guy had to kind of just like hope that it could happen. So if you, if you take that situation and if that situation is going to keep happening, it's just that, and he ended up signing for a club called Holbro in, in Denmark. Like, I'm not sure if, if they're going to restrict your movement inside and then you're trying to go out, um, they're adding another restriction of training competition and solidarity payments um, that some clubs may or may not decide to pay. Now, if you're legit, hey, they're going to do it. But now if they're restricting you with it, and this is how I was trying to relate it to people, if they're restricting you within the states, um, that means they could be affecting your opportunity to get on the national team. They could be affecting uh, your opportunities to grow as a player so that you are good enough for someone to want to spend that training compensation and solidarity. Let's say you don't want to play. And then they threaten you with, well, we're not going to put you on the USL team or, or you're going to get less time. Like, I've seen those things happen. Like, you know, I, I have firsthand experience talking with players who were in those situations who said, you know, if you go there, and if, there's some that's been documented. I think Justin Rennick's from uh, New England. Uh, he went over and I think he was punished by New England for going overseas for a trial. Um, so they restrict your movement so much. So uh, this is just another restriction that will slow down. Not saying that all of a sudden uh, the players won't start coming, uh, start coming through, but it, it'll slow down and it'll affect it. And it's, it's more because of the players. I, I speak more from the players, you know, uh, standpoint They're saying, Hey, if all of a sudden now they're going to be taking training comp uh, and then, uh, this unproven 18-year-old American, which people still need to understand, the American market is still not 100% valued overseas. It's just not, you know? And even if you break down actually what's happening, like, look at it. Our main players, like, who was a big, who was a main player in Champions League this year? Maybe Weston. Weston was probably the biggest, the biggest American uh, talent in Champions League this year, you know? Right. No one else had a big impact. We're hoping Christian has a big impact at Chelsea. You know, he obviously ran into something this year, but you're hoping that Christian that Pulisic has a big season at Chelsea next year and he's one of the feature players. I mean, you're hoping that uh, Adams can keep going at Leipzig and, and keep pushing forward and, and, and have substantial mi- minutes and move forward. But this is, I mean, we're a young and upcoming market. It's not like all of a sudden, like, uh, we have proven players at the top level that gives, you know, that, that kind of substantiates our market. You know, I'll tell you this. One of the biggest things is when I send video of American players overseas is that they say, oh, yeah, he's good, but look at the time, look at the space, look at the team he's playing, look at how they're doing. Like, they look for so many negatives because a lot of the scouts and people, they're looking at reasons why they shouldn't sign you first, <laughs> you know, or why they should not pick you rather than why they should pick you, you know? So they're looking at all the negatives first, and then if – and if the level that you're playing against in the States with those videos, all those things, you know, they want to see how you could do when you come, you know? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm not sure if, if a lot of MLS uh, academies are going to give kids opportunities to go test themselves overseas first, like go on trials. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Maybe they're going to threaten them with stuff and say, we're not going to sign you or you train or, you know, and I'm not sure about this, the na- like, I don't know if you know, but I'm I'm not sure about the 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 collaboration between the national team and the MLS. Like, what you know, like how, how 
like does the MLS control the youth national teams, which is a big, big way to get noticed in Europe. You know, is is a lot of them ask, are they are they on the national team? You know, so, so yeah. When you look at something that you're touching on there is control, right? Depro- mm-hmm. um, you, you see in 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 American soccer depressed wages even even Mm -hmm. with professional players playing within major league soccer you have it's absurd i mean think about this you have players playing first division soccer making 50 and sixty thousand dollars a year in america Mm -hmm. i mean that anyone who looks at major league soccer and says they're serious about reaching a global standard is either a liar or they're completely ignorant because yeah this is America. If we look yeah. at, at professional sports in America, let, let's set aside Europe. Let's set aside your your biggest leagues around the world. This mm-hmm. is America. Mm-hmm. If you look at NBA, yep. Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NHL, none of those leagues would be taken seriously as the top league in their sport if they were paying their players fifty and $60,000 a year. No one. They'd be yeah. like, "That what?" <laughs> and mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. they turn on TV and and they might see MLS or they might see an ad for MLS or they've heard about Major League Soccer and they think, "Okay, that's professional soccer in America," and they have mm-hmm. no clue that these guys are only making fifty and sixty thousand dollars. I mean, if you're a kid and you're growing up and you're aspiring to become, you know, a pro mm-hmm. athlete, maybe it's your way out of your mm-hmm. situation, right? And and yep. we've seen this in other sports around uh, around the country, where players grow up and they aspire to play in the NFL, they aspi- aspire to play baseball or or basketball or whatever. Whatever. How are you going to aspire to to make, you know, fifty to sixty thousand dollars? I mean, you're you're trying to you're trying to change your life here, and and mm-hmm. you want to you want an opportunity to do that, and then on top of that, you've got all of these restrictions and rules so that major league soccer owner operators don't have to actually be that invested in the sport. They don't have Mm -hmm. to develop players. They don't have to pay and compensate their players. And it it seems as though, even though it's, it's good movement from a macro level in this sense, the, the, Mm -hmm. the fact that MLS is saying now we're going to honor solidarity payments and training compensation and and that's going to be you know bilateral it's going to be back and forth that is a good step on a macro level from from the standpoint of okay number one for years major league soccer and u.s soccer has been lying i mean let's just call it what it is they've been lying about child labor laws and and other excuses they've used to claim uh-huh. that they couldn't do this. So the, the uh-huh. fact that they're doing it proves that those were lies that because no, no laws ever changed on this. And, and so at least on a macro level, from a principal standpoint, we're making progress in terms of FIFA compliance. The problem uh-huh. is in a vacuum, it becomes more restrictive because uh-huh. now, as you've described, you, you've got players who may not get as much of an opportunity and and then you 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 overseas because now these payments are going to be expected 
um, where in the mm-hmm. past MLS has just kind of turned a blind eye and U.S. soccer has turned a blind eye to that, that, that policy, the rules, the FIFA rules. Now that that's in place, you've just said, look, clubs are going to they're going to think long and hard before they sign that player. That that means less opportunity to go overseas for 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 some of these players. It also means that it gives Major League Soccer franchises more opportunities to control player movement. It doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't provide them more freedom. It does the opposite uh, in terms of that which then leads us back to depressed wages. Because if you don't have opportunity, if you don't have competition, you're going to have a very hard time uh, getting market value for your services. So if, mm-hmm. if if you are a player in, in the U.S. and you want to get out, you're 13, 14, 15, if you, if you have EU in, in European you know, Union citizenship and, and the ability to, to get overseas – life is relatively easy for you to get over there and and kind of start doing something. If you are not EU, if you don't have European union citizenship, uh, what, what is a pathway for some of those players that aspire to play in Europe? They want to, they want to play with the best. They want to, Mm -hmm. to challenge themselves. They want opportunities. What can they do to, to try to um, make a better, you know, life for themselves? Yeah. Well, it's, um, so obviously it's hard. I mean, when you're, when you're not in you, you have to wait till 18 anyway. Right. Um, there's a, there's a lot more, I mean, there's a lot more of the soccer schools starting to show up. Um, I'm even looking at our situations, like why I moved to, to Holland is that, you know, to start, we're starting yoga Amsterdam. So we're looking to, to give American players an opportunity to train, be seen, evaluate themselves because, you know, I couldn't stay in the States and do what we were doing because no validation there. So, you know, we had to come overseas and, 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 and begin our program over here. Um, I think, I think more of that is coming. I think, um, like I said, more and more European clubs are getting interested in the market. Um, especially once, because the ones who could, who could actually look at the market and do something about it immediately, your Bayern Munich's, your Barcelona's, your Real, their level is so high that you're not going to have like a, a lot of talent come through there. If you get what I mean, like, you know, you'll get maybe two or three and, and, you know, I know Germany, I mean, Schalke and Dortmund had a number of players uh, have come through, you know, through their, through their organizations. But you know, you, you're still not going to, you know, if it, as the level gets higher, it's harder to get guys through. Um, I think some of the clubs who are, are, are like uh, mid-tier are starting to look at it. They're starting to be more uh, more players signed from different areas of the country that people didn't know about. Um, I hope that continues. Um, there's more um, – like I said, I think there's more agents from outside who are starting to come in and say, hmm, the, the, the market in Europe is, is saturated with uh, agents competing for these players. Maybe we should come over here and look at these guys. I've seen a little bit of uh, things like that. So people are, people are starting to think differently and look at the talents, um, you know. But it's, it, I guess it all goes back to when you don't have a connected market, like we don't, we don't have a connected system, all of a sudden, like you said, it just devalues everything. Like even like if you, let's say you're a U.S. player, okay, how do you actually get 
hype. Like who's who's the biggest U.S. youth player to ever really come through? It was probably um, it was Freddie, right? Freddie right. Adu. Yeah, I mean, like, who actually did who did everything in the states? Freddie. I mean, I think Landon obviously had a big name as well coming through, but even at seventeen, like at seventeen or seventeen eighteen, like Landon went to Byron Leverkusen. That made him even bigger. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. But like, there's only been really one player who's ever really made his name global within the States, and that's Freddie. No one else has done that. No one else within the States. But even when Christian first went to Dortmund, like, after he started appearing and doing all this stuff, then you started hearing his name. You know what I mean? Weston, I mean, you hear about it, but, like, he made his – like, Europe gives that market to your name. It, it ups who you are. It ups your whole – like, everyone's like, oh, you're in Europe. It's just – it's you know, it's, it's kind of like – you know, I'm not into Italian fashion brands, but if someone has Gucci, people look at you differently for some reason. I don't know why, but you know, that's that's kind of that's kind of the the mindset I think that comes with it. And so, your marketability as a U.S. player, like even like okay, like I know FC Dallas signs a lot of uh, a lot of youth players. I don't, I couldn't tell you like if I saw one of those guys, I I wouldn't even know who one of those guys were. No offense to them. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's great they sign pro, but like I could walk by and pass the street here and they'd be like, who? You get what I mean? Yep. Like even Chris, even Christian Pulisic here in Holland, like they know him if you're in football, but like the common person doesn't know him. Like I, I had to, I was talking with this soccer organization and uh, the lady who runs the organization was making fun of America for missing the world cup. She's like, who are your players anyway? Who are you guys? You know? And I was like, it was, just, it was tongue in cheek. It was joke, you know, joking and going on, but it just really got me thinking like, yeah, who knows us? <laughs> you know, who are we? Like who could like, who's going to recognize our players bar, like a player playing for that club. You get what I mean? Like, you know, if you, if you know, I, I know Leipzig, like Leipzig fans would know Tyler Adams, Schalke fans would know McKinney, you know, obviously Chelsea fans are going to know Pulisic and all those guys. But I'm saying like, even with that, even with them doing everything, their names haven't hit to those heights yet, you know, and hopefully that they do so that then they can get recognized. And, you know, because when you make things bigger and your market gets bigger, it just helps everyone. Right. Helps everyone who's after you. It's like the tiger. Completely. It's like the, like, it's like when tiger plays golf, tiger does well at golf. Everybody makes more money. <laughs> you know, that's what the, that's all they say. Is that it comes down because of the marketability and all those things. So in the States, if you're a player, the way that they're they're doing it, the way that they're developing it, the 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 uh, the way that the system's not connected, where locally you can't get that much interest, regionally you can't get that much interest, nationally forget about it, no one knows about you. Wow, you know, like that's insane. Like we treat our high school sports, high school football, high school basketball. Like those people are not like I knew who Zion Williamson was before he went to Duke. And I've been in, I've been here for two years now right. in Holland, but I knew who Zion Williamson was before he went to Duke, you know, He's because of the mark. Yeah, exactly. Because you're able to build that marketability up, you know, people, uh, you, you create the interest because there's enough of a connection. Now that comes more from cultural, you know, with basketball and, and football and all those things, but soccer has a huge culture. And a lot of those is is, is, uh, a huge culture as well. And a lot of it's just not connected, you know? So we're not able to see like who these guys are and they kind of, and kind of build up their names and build up their marketability and build up, 
you know, the, the interest into like, okay, why we should see a player. And, and, you know, I think they're, they're just thinking, okay, let's build a stadium. Soccer specific for 20, 25,000 people. It's soccer specific and people come out and they enjoy it. And that's it, you know? And it's like, I don't know. It's missing that star power and it's missing so much. Like I, I what American player does anybody go to the, the, is there any American player that people go to the stadium and say they have to go see them play? No. I, I, and I think what you're getting at there is the, the soul, the essence of mm-hmm. American soccer, the culture is, is lacking uh, across the board, across the country. And that, mm-hmm. that lack of soul, that lack of culture is, is ultimately affecting not just um, player development, uh, club opportunity, but it's also affecting the bottom line of the sport as well mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of mm-hmm. what what we have uh, available to us in America. Well, Kef, look, thanks for joining the show. Look forward to having you yep. back on soon uh, to talk more about player opportunities, player development, culture, all of that, because there's a lot of places yep. we can go and a lot of places we look forward to going with you Definitely. in the very, very near future. Um, for if people want to find you uh, online or look at any of the, the things that you have going on, wh- where could they find you? Yeah, um, uh, so at Kefren Fuller, so at Kefren uh, underscore Fuller. Uh, my name is K-E-P-H-E-R-N underscore Fuller, F-U-L-L-E-R. And uh, yeah, that's mostly where you can find me uh, chatting, chatting about some soccer, man. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We look forward to having you on very, very soon. Hey, thank you, Daniel. Appreciate you guys, man. Have a good one. Thanks. That was Kefren Fuller with Joga and SMI. He um, is always pushing the boundaries and trying to raise the level of excellence in, in a variety of areas. Connect with him if you haven't already. Um, it, 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 he has such great insight. So if you're trying to figure out Europe, if you're trying to understand the process, the environment, etc., he's a great resource to get connected with. Another great resource to get connected with is Charity Water. Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people all across the world. If you haven't learned about them, you should check them out at charitywater.org. We'll...
Welcome back to the show. We are um, delighted to have joining us on the show, Mickey Turner. Mickey, welcome to the show. Daniel, uh, great to talk to you again. Uh, it's been a little while since uh, the uh, AGM meetings and Scottsdale, so uh, great to be back with you. So I wanted to bring you on today um, and and talk a little bit about yet another lawsuit. Um, <laughs> it seems like uh, whatever day of the week it is, we've got another lawsuit to to discuss. Um, yesterday, the, the news broke on uh, this lawsuit between Relevant Sports and U.S. Soccer. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, what you were able to learn about this latest lawsuit with U.S. soccer. Yeah, so this is an interesting one, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of a rematch because it involves a, a number of the same uh, people. Uh, Charlie Stilatano, who uh, is a FIFA match agent, helps uh, organize events, is involved in this lawsuit uh not as a plaintiff, but, uh, you know, as kind of one of the, the main characters. Essentially what's going on here is that Relevant Sports, which is a business that promotes uh, international soccer matches, uh, is puts on a lot of stuff in the United States, uh, most famously of which is the uh, ICC, the International Champions Cup, which happens every summer, and you get some of the biggest teams in the world uh, coming here to play friendlies as they ramp up their preseason. Uh, it's a massive event, uh, gets lots of, lots of big crowds, and makes lots of money. Um, Relevant Sports has also tried to get into moving some number of domestic games to, to the United States, uh, like regular season games. Uh, you may have, uh, people may recall that uh, they tried to get, I think, a Real Madrid or Barcelona game here last year, but that fell apart. And most recently, they've uh, worked to try to get a game, regular season game, involving a couple of Ecuadorian teams, uh, one from Guayaquil, and I can't remember the other one, of oh, Barcelona Sporting Club, uh, and try to get a regular season game here. That appears to have been a red line for U.S. soccer. Uh, additionally, and before I keep going, uh, they also tried to bring the Copa Libertadores final uh, here as well because uh, the one between, I think it was uh, Boca and River Plate, was plagued by violence uh, last year and could not be played in Argentina. They tried to bring that here, or at least had some preliminary conversations. That didn't go anywhere and ended up going overseas. Um, and then in addition to the uh, the La Liga game, they tried to bring over here. So this is kind of the third bite at the uh, apple that they've had. And so they tried to bring the Ecuadorian teams and, in fact, are still trying to do so. And they are accusing U.S. soccer of essentially slow walking their um, their application to get a team here and not outright denying it, but just you know moving things wrong just slowly enough so that by the time uh, – the game is scheduled for, uh, which is May, um, by the time that passes uh, and U.S. soccer still hasn't given their blessing, then obviously it's too late to have, have the game here. So that is the crux of the background of the lawsuit. Uh, Relevant Sports is trying to force U.S. soccer to agree to uh, play uh, to authorize the game here. And there's a couple of, uh, in a few minutes, I'm sure we'll get into a couple of reasons why they're trying to do that and what they're hoping to accomplish. So before we get into those, uh, why is it or why does it seem like 
U.S. soccer is adversarial to anyone not Major League Soccer or Major League Soccer's second company, Soccer United Marketing. Why does it seem like they tolerate everyone else to a certain level, but then beyond that, it's like, okay, that's enough. You're you're either getting too successful or you ha- you're getting too ambitious. We only have a one preferred partner, and 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 so we're not we're not going to entertain X, Y, Z, whatever. Why does it seem like that is the posture of U.S. soccer to you? I mean, relevant sports is not the first who have made the claim about, um, you know conflicts of interest between u.s soccer major league soccer and soccer united marketing that's also involved in other cases that are are currently underway um and in lawsuits that are underway uh, even as we speak so this is just the latest to uh, have identified this problematic relationship why do you you know why do you think that that u.s soccer is you know so adamant on trying to muck things up for organizations or in this case a company like relevant sports um, that is not major league soccer or soccer united marketing well i think u.s soccer would say that their 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 mission statement i guess for lack of a better word is to promote domestic u.s soccer um, domestic soccer in the united states and so they try to prevent people or not prevent that's a maybe a bit too loaded, but they try to facilitate that by making uh, a number of decisions and, and rulings when it comes to applications like these uh, that they think are in, uh, going to protect that. The funny thing is, in this particular case, uh, the relevant sports game uh, or game that they want to promote probably doesn't do nearly as much uh, business for relevant sports or have nearly as much of an impact on domestic soccer as the ICC, which, you know, is what, 20, 25 games of some of the highest profile teams in the league, which, you know, uh, presumably detracts from domestic soccer, including MLS, because you've got people have a choice between going to an MLS game and going to see uh, Arsenal and Real Madrid playing a friendly uh, a lot of those, you know, ca- casual fans who may uh, may be interested in an MLS game are likely going to choose the the friendly if they're only going to go to one or two games a year, um, as opposed to the Ecuadorian first division game that's coming in, which will you know probably do well, but I you know I can't imagine it does nearly the crowds that the ICC does for its an average game. So it's a little weird that they're picking drawing this line in the sand to to draw, but they're they're their line appears to be the fact that it's a regular season game and not a preseason game. I don't really see that as much of a distinction, but perhaps U.S. soccer thinks that it's going to open the floodgates to a bunch of regular season domestic games being played here, similar to what the NFL um, and Major League Baseball do when they go to uh, Europe, uh, London, um, or, or, or Japan to play regular season games. Perhaps they think that it's just going to open the floodgates to a bunch of those types of games, uh, and they just think that that is something that is going to ultimately affect MLS. I'm not sure I buy that line of reasoning, and I'm not sure a court will either, either, but I think that's what U.S. soccer's that's their reasoning for for kind of putting their, their foot down on this particular 
series of games. It's it's a little again. I, I'm not sure I buy it, but that's that's what they appear to. That's their reasoning. It, it appears. So hypothetically, uh, if if this were Soccer United marketing putting together this game, do we see this lawsuit? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, so Soccer United marketing obviously uh, handles all of the uh, you know. Uh, international games for the federation uh as well as uh, some mexican games as well um the i guess the short answer would probably be no but i'm not sure why the soccer united marketing would be putting on this game or would they have the uh you know, ability to do so because obviously soccer united marketing is a partnership between u.s soccer and mls um and so i'm not sure that mls would be in the business of bringing regular season games that potentially conflict with their uh with their league so they would from that perspective they probably wouldn't even get involved but in the event that they did obviously u.s soccer has a better um, uh, a higher stake in bringing those uh games in because they are likely to see more money um because they get a they would presumably get a cut of of whatever that is or it would contribute to their overall bottom line whereas the rebel sports uh case you know they're just paying the fee uh and that's about it. So they're not necessarily uh, contributing a whole lot to U.S. soccer coffers. So just from a, a financial standpoint, they'd be probably more likely to, to come in the, with a sum game. But I'm not sure that some would get into the business of doing this uh, unless the money was so, you know, so great that they just couldn't resist, which is entirely possible. Right, right. So one of the things that in reading about this lawsuit and reading your take on this lawsuit and and reading others um one of the things i found interesting is that the money paid to us soccer by relevant sports compared to the money paid by soccer united marketing to us soccer i believe uh if i correct me if i'm wrong but i believe i saw yesterday that relevant sports paid approximately only about 10 million dollars less is is that uh, am I am I getting that number right um, in fees to U.S. soccer? Um, yeah, over the course of time, uh, they paid. I want to say they 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 say they've paid about seventeen million dollars over the course of their existence. Um, I have the suit in front of me, but I'm not. Sh- I don't remember where that was. I'm not sure. I'm not sure wh- over what. Oh, let's see. It's nineteen point five million dollars over six years. So you know that's about three you know three plus million dollars a year. Um, Whereas some contributes now contributes to U.S. soccer around $25 million a year average um, per year. So there's the difference there uh, of about, oh, you know, do the math. Uh, so it's, 20, about, it's about we'll 10 X, about 10 X yeah, a year, yeah. right? Like just for round yeah. numbers. Uh, yeah. Cause it's, that's, it's that's early in the morning out there on the West coast for you. So yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want you to have to do too much math. I haven't, haven't done, I haven't had my coffee. Yet. There you go. So, um, 100%. so, Right. So obviously not um, the, you know, the exact numbers, you know, when you, but I, you, you wouldn't expect that, right? 10 X. Uh, I mean, you would not expect relevant sports to be paying the same amount that soccer United marketing is paying when they are supposed to be providing, um, you know, revenues and resources to the Federation as part of their partnership. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Right. So you would expect that number to be higher from soccer United marketing in, in that regard looking Definitely. looking at at the um at this lawsuit and looking at at you know yet another 
series of, of um, legal proceedings, complaints, um, frustrations from uh, people within the American soccer community. What, on a global sense, if we if we just kind of zoom out here um, for a second, what 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 are we looking at here? I mean, in terms of a resolution, um, maybe for this specific case, but all of the cases. Where well, where do you see some of these things going? Yeah, so the U.S. Soccer is taking a pretty uh, aggressive stance towards all of these lawsuits. Obviously, the NAS, NASL lawsuit is still plugging along, and that looks like it's definitely going to trial. There's also the U.S. Soccer Foundation lawsuit where they're uh, arguing about the logos and the marks. Uh, that lawsuit looks like it's going to be going to trial. Um, you know, U.S. Soccer is not really in the business of, of <laughs> settling these cases, and you know, they're they're not required to if they you know, if they think that the settlement terms are not agreeable or they think that their case is solid, uh, you know, in the case of the U.S. Soccer Foundation lawsuit, I've actually uh, I'm working on a story for that um, and kind of the background on why that that case is still going uh, going along without a resolution inside. It's just, you know, a lot of people challenging uh, U.S. Soccer's authority on a number of different fronts. Um, and this one will be uh, interesting as well, because when uh, for those who don't know, uh, as I said, Charlie Spilatano, who's the match agent, was involved in the previous uh, relevant sports lawsuit, uh, which is called Champions World, uh, pre- previous version. Um, they ended up, U.S. Soccer ended up winning that lawsuit, but there was a ruling made in that suit that basically said that U.S. Soccer does not have authority to regulate professional soccer. Um, at least it's not granted by the Ted Stevens Act, which is kind of what gives U.S. Soccer much of its power. And so that is something that has never been reckoned with. Uh, U.S. soccer still claim the authority to basically regulate, uh, you know, professional soccer and, you know, all that entails. Uh, but there's at least one court that has decided that they don't have that authority. It's just no one has since challenged, you know, you know, use that ruling to try to challenge U.S. soccer. NASL is using it a little bit. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out overall, because again, this is another challenge to the regulatory authority of U.S. soccer. You know, U.S. soccer is claiming that they're, they have the ability to stop these games um, when they determine that it's detrimental to the sport to do so. Um, so the question obviously is why is putting on an Ecuadorian game, regular season game, detrimental to the sport of soccer when having 25 ICC games in the middle of the MLS season, not. Um, and they're probably going to, they've tried, I think U.S. Soccer's tried through this case specifically to try to, again, slow walk a denial without having to deny it because then they're going to have to explain the reasons for denying it. And that's going to raise a, a ruffle all out of feathers in the soccer community when they're, claiming that the reason that they have to deny these games is because it's detrimental to U.S. soccer, uh, MLS specifically, and USL on a lesser level. So uh, it's just another suit that is is challenging the regulatory authority of U.S. soccer in one way or another. And at some point, all of these are going to have to come to a head and the courts are going to have to make a decision um, and decide what is the role of the federation over soccer in the in the United States, because uh, this is another challenge to that uh, to that status quo. So, looking at the federation and looking at where their their power or their authority comes from, it comes from two places. Uh, places it comes from 
obviously the Ted Stevens Act that you've mentioned, and that gives them the authority to to govern soccer uh, on a amateur level, primarily yeah, Olympics, pr- primarily for the Olympics. And and I've said this um, to to people before when when talking about wh- where U.S. soccer's power comes from. If U.S. soccer did not manage the Olympic soccer program they would not necessarily be bound by the Ted Stevens Act um, because part of that whole Ted Stevens Act had to do with being a national governing body with the Olympics themselves and that kind of reclassification that allowed the dream team to play for the Olympic program uh, using professional NBA players and that reclassification that, that that's where that, he's kind of entered into the fray most of their authority in terms of governing you know which matches uh, get played in the states from an international standpoint um, come really from being the national governing body recognized by fifa and my understanding is is in the original case with champions world that although the initial uh, U.S. court ruling was that U.S. soccer had no authority to um, provisionally sanction or govern uh, professional soccer in the U.S. The Court of Arbitration in Sport, uh, or what became the Court of Arbitration in Sport, ruled that uh, that authority did uh, come, but not from the Ted Stevens Act. It came from being uh, the national governing body under FIFA. So, um, you know, there. The way I see a lot of this is that um, we we have a national governing body, the U.S. Soccer Federation, that continues to try to have an adversarial relationship for whatever reason with its members on some level, and and it doesn't seem to be trying to cooperate unless. Your your initials are MLS or SUM, um, and it 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 seems that the women's national team. It seems that uh, recently the men's national team uh, in in their complaints about uh, playing surface in, in stadium uh, venues. When you look at other leagues uh, like the NASL, even the USL have had some issues with U.S. Soccer. Um, Everywhere you look, there's just one frustration after another, this latest with relevant sports. Um, you know, they just keep happening. They keep coming. And uh, hopefully we get to the end of this uh, soon and and we can actually, you know, provide opportunity for everybody in America to play soccer and play it at the highest level and get paid the way they should get paid to play the game and love the game and enjoy the game. So Mickey, Hey, look, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for jumping on. We look forward to having you back on very soon to get even more in depth in these issues. Um, I really appreciate you, uh, coming on today to kind of jump in and, and give us, uh, some insight and updates on this latest case with us soccer. Um, how can people, uh, find you on, on Twitter? Yeah, uh, anybody can find me on Twitter at Turner ESQ. Uh, just uh, you know, like it sounds. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and we look forward to having you on very, very soon. Anytime, Daniel. Have a good one. So that was Mickey Turner, 
And uh, big, big thanks to Mickey for uh, for coming on the show and and jumping on here. I got I got in touch with him yesterday and just said, hey, look, I know you're not in the lineup for tomorrow. We, we were planning to have you on in the next uh, couple of weeks to, to be on the show. But can you jump on today? Because this, you know, another day, another lawsuit. So thanks for joining the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to thank Kevin Fuller for coming on and sharing his insight on the American market, the European market, and what we need to do to get better as well as Mickey Turner for hopping on today and talking about the latest legal troubles with U.S. soccer. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned.